Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. There will be some other verses we're going to look at briefly. I'm going to read them. Uh, they will be on the screen, so you can see them there. And then if you don't have a chance to write them down, uh, they're on your Faith Life app there in the, the sermon, uh, sermon slides. When God's people repent... It's not the way that phrase usually ends. We usually say when God's people pray. And we use this verse to do it. And, and, and it is good and it is necessary. It is right that God's people pray. But if we only pray, at least as I'm going to describe it a little bit this morning, if that's all we do, we are going to miss the mark. As an example... We often, and, and rightly so, we, we often excoriate the prosperity gospel preachers for their vending machine God. The prosperity gospel is a, 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 an aberrant teaching of God's word. He is not just a God that we can, we pray to, we demand what he want, and like we pushed A1, we get what it is that we asked for. That's not how God works. That's not at all how he works in scripture. But we are no better when we approach a bad situation with, well, we just need to pray about it. Especially if we are only praying for an end to that situation. Because what we're saying subtly, if not absolutely, you know, if it's not our purpose and our point, we are implying that, well, if we just pray about the situation, it will go away. When in fact, Second Chronicles 7.14 tells us there is much more to our actions as believers than simply or merely praying, talking to God about the situation. Prayer is necessary. Don't uh, leave here having heard me say we're not supposed to pray about things. It's not at all what I'm saying. But according to this passage, prayer, praying, talking to God, isn't even where we start when our country is in the sort of situation it is right now. And it especially isn't where we stop. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Prayer is a part of it. And you know the verse that we're going to be talking about this morning. Most of you could probably quote it. Prayer in a list of four things is number two. Something comes first and two other things come after it. Now, one could say that's all part of the prayer process, and absolutely, I agree with that. 100%. It is a part of the process. But if we omit the other three, we have not done what we are supposed to do. There, there are books and songs entitled, When God's People Pray... And, and they are correct. Jim Cimbala has a study, on a Bible study, I think it's a six-week study, on when God's people pray and what that can do. And that is absolutely the truth. But I'm telling you today that nothing will change the world like the day when God's people repent. Prayer is a start. Repentance 
is the point. Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 is our passage this morning. The chronicler records God's words to Solomon. If I shut the sky and there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I was surprised to learn as I was preparing for this message this week that I've never preached on this verse. Now, I've only been a preacher for 10 years in the ministry for 25, so maybe that's not surprising, but of some 300 and something sermons that, I've, that I know of, never come up. I've talked about it, but never preached on this verse. They... Uh, the, the, the context here, this God actually begins speaking in verse 12 and goes through verse uh, 22, if I'm not mistaken. And Solomon has just finished building the temple, and he's had his prayer of dedication. They've had the dedication ceremonies. And then God appears to Solomon at night and says this to him. God is replying to the temple being built and to Solomon's dedication and to Solomon's prayer. This is his reply to what they are doing. Now, I'm going to go ahead and burst your bubble at the beginning. Land in this verse, verse 14, is not America. It's not any country that exists today. If this passage, verses 13 and 14, cannot be applied universally to any church in any location, then this passage loses its strength. This passage has to be able to be preached at a, an underground church that doesn't exist in North Korea right now. And this passage has to apply to them. Or in Great Britain, or in... South Africa, or in Vietnam, or China, or Bolivia, or Chile, or anywhere. Any church must be able to come to this passage and see their land healed. So it's not America that it's talking about. America is not the promised land. America did not replace the promised land of Israel. But since the promised land of Israel is God's topic, if my people, Israel, will do these things, then I will heal their land, the promised land, Israel. Then that land must correlate to something to believers today, I believe. And it must correlate to believers, uh, to something for believers all over the world. Believers, we don't have a physical promised land. We don't have a place that we go to that's ours our promised land is the new heaven and the new earth. It will be very physical when it comes, but it's no longer, it's not of this world. It's not right now. It's not when we live, and it won't be until Jesus comes back and the consummation of all things happens, however you understand that consummation to be. Jesus is going to come back and redo things. And the believer's land is the redone things. 
It's not any of the current things. So how does this passage apply to us? I, I, I spent the week asking various questions in various pastor groups that I'm in on, on Facebook, getting feedback and, 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 and wondering, okay, what's the response? It, it's, it, this is like the, the third rail of, of the Old Testament for some reason. Nobody wants to make a declarative statement about what the land means here. And, and I, maybe it's just, just nobody's ever thought, hey, that's necessary. I'm going to make a declarative statement this morning about what the land means here. But first, we've got to see it from Israel's point of view then. And once we see it from Israel's point of view then, I think most of you, I would, I'm, I'm going to be very generous to say all of you, are going to begin to see, ah, oh, okay, I see where he's going to go. But, but don't tell your neighbor in case they're still behind. Let them catch on later on. So, so for Israel then, what's going on? Well, the first thing we see in verse 13 is what I'm calling stages of discipline. Stages of discipline. Now, they aren't in order of severity. As a matter of fact, if they, I, I believe they're in a, in a reverse order of severity. God says, if I shut the sky so there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people... It's, it's in reverse order of severity, but I think it's in order of, this isn't a word, but I'm going to use it anyway, surprisingness, shock. There's, there's the word, the real word for surprisingness, in order of shock. He says, if, if there's no rain, that's a, that's a drought, right? How many crops grow in a drought? Zero. I mean, if you're growing crops that depend on water, none of them grow in a drought. So from the get-go, it's bad. When there was a drought and there was no rain, things were bad and everybody knew it. And we know right now, because this happened, it's going to be bad for the next however many months. Maybe until the next harvest or the next planting season. We can count on a year of really, really bad times because of this drought. But that year is expected. We, we left 2019 thinking, glad that's over. I saw a calendar this morning, I'm not going to remember all of it, um, there, that, that said, now here's what you can expect the rest of the year. And July had aliens, and we had Earth, uh, vol the, the super volcano of Yellowstone, and, and just all these, you know, because really at this point, folks are, we don't, shh. What's next? We don't want to say that out loud, though, right? Like, no, we don't want to ask that question. The drought told them a year of bad. A year of bad is coming. We know that. The grasshoppers, the, the plague is what I'm calling that. Their midway hopes are dashed, right? They've, they've planted everything. The rains have come when they were supposed to. Now they either have little shoots or they have big plants. Maybe even the, the blooms are, are there, or, or the, the grain or the, the fruit is, is just beginning to form. And, 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 and you're nervous, you're worried, right? Because anything can happen, and sure enough, something does. And the grasshoppers come. Oh, that's right. We had that in February in Africa, right? Gazillions upon gazillions of locusts. 
grasshoppers. And they destroy everything in sight. So midway through this, you've, you've, you've done everything you're supposed to, and now you're just at the mercy of nature, they would have said, and grasshoppers come. And now we've got 10 months of bad coming. We thought it was going to be okay, but now we're not. And then the third, we see the, the third stage of discipline is pestilence. And in pestilence I envisioned here, we planted, the rains came, no grasshoppers showed up, it grew, the rain stopped when it needed to, we could harvest, we got it in, it's in the barns, we're eating, oh, we're good till next year. They were fat and happy. I'm going to use that phrase a couple of times throughout this message, and this Pestilence hit them directly. Disease, a pandemic. They thought everything was good. They thought they had made it. And bam, something gets them anyway. Where did these come from? Where did the three things come from? It's not rhetorical. God. God. All of these things came from God. If I shut the sky, if I command the grasshopper, if I send the pestilence, if I do these things to you, rhetorically, it best wake you up. You better see what's going on in your world if I do this. And then we go from the stages of discipline, and that's why I said discipline, not stages of tragedy, stages of discipline, to the necessary response. If I do these things, if I shut, if I command, and if I send, and then, sometimes if is put in there, my people who bear my name, Jews at this time, do four things. Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Humble. There's a song that's uh, an early 90s, mid-90s uh, worship song called Give Us Clean Hands, I think is the name of it. And I knew some churches that wouldn't sing it because there's a line in there that says, Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. Well, there are a number of passages where it, the Bible actually says, humble yourself. And personally, I think the not singing it is a splitting of hairs, because I believe it's a both and. We are to make ourselves humble, but if we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. It's coming one way or the other. Humble yourself is almost like a warning. It's almost like a, God is saying, don't make me come down there. You best humble, humble yourself or I'm going to do it for you. Okay? Humble yourself. Reject your pride. Reject your rightness. I've got this figured out. 
we made it past the planting. We got the rain we needed. I got it figured out now. Oh, we're to the we're to the uh, the harvesting stage. I figured it out. We're good. I'm glad we got this. Aren't we good farmers? Oh. I've got barns full of things, full of food, full of grain. Jesus told the parable of the guy that said, fill the barns, let's eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Humble yourself. Reject your pride. Reject your rightness. That's the first thing the people are supposed to do. We read throughout the New Testament, we read throughout the Old Testament of the pride of the Jews among the nations. I don't want to tip my hand too much here, but there's a problem there, a big one. The second thing they are told to do, right? The second thing, pray. Pray. Go to the one who is in charge of all things. Start the conversation. Pray, talk to me, God says. Humble yourself, realize you ain't right. And I'll mean you ain't right. Some of us ain't right, right? But you aren't correct. You aren't as smart as you think you are. You are not the God of your life that you think you are. You are not in charge. You are not the one that gets to make decisions and do things. I am God. Humble yourself and talk to me. He's saying, go to the one who is in charge. And then a parallel statement, but I don't think it's just parallel here. Pray and seek my face. As a matter of fact, your Bible probably may not have a comma between pray and seek my face. It, the, the translators may have intended for that to go together and and while they are a parallel statement, and that is very common in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew writing in general, I believe there is a difference. Praying is the talking, is the conversation. But to seek God's face is to pray His prayers. To get an understanding from Him of what I am to pray. What do I need to pray about, Lord? I might want to pray for A, but you're, you're more concerned about X and Y and Z. A may not be the focus right now. I need to pray about these other things. There's another part of this seek his face that is a, a common uh, phrase uh, or, or reminds us of a common phrase in the Old Testament. To have God's face turned toward you could be either good or bad in the Old Testament. To have God's face turned away from you is always bad. God, why have you turned from me, David would ask. Turn back to me, he would request. And yet, oftentimes, David or uh, someone else would say, Lord, turn your face to them. Turn your wrath to them. See what they are doing. So his face turned towards you could be good or bad. His face away was always bad. So when uh, the chronicler here or when God says to Solomon and to the people, seek my face, he's telling them, make sure I'm looking at you. Make sure I am 
honoring you. I am telling you what you're doing is correct. That's why I'm saying pray God's prayers. If his face is turned away, God would say, I, I'm, no, I ain't listening to you. We do it with our kids, right? I done told you once. I told you twice. I'm not listening anymore. We turn our face from them. And what, the, what God is saying is, seek my face. Seek my permission. Seek my recognition. Seek my um, validation in what you're doing. If you don't see my face when you pray, you're not praying the right things or for the right things. That's number three. Number four, repent. Repent. God, we didn't cause the drought. We didn't tell it to stop raining. We didn't do anything to mess up the weather system. We didn't grow grasshoppers. They, the grasshoppers didn't escape from the grasshopper farm. And now we got to deal with it. It's not, it's not somebody let the grasshopper gate open and now all our crops gone. Lord, we didn't do anything to cause the pestilence. We didn't create it. We didn't uh, uh, do anything weird. We, th this is just something that happened. Why, why, why are you telling us to repent, God? Because the problems they were facing in the land were the fault of their sin. Michael, I don't believe that. Okay. If I send these things, you repent, then I'll fix them. I don't care what you believe. It's what the Bible says. I will have to hear you, God says. Repent of what you have done. The problems you are facing, I have sent them. You didn't create grasshoppers, I did. And I sent them because I've got to discipline you. But he goes on. You humble, you pray, you seek my face, you repent. Then God's intervention shows up. I will do, he says, three things. I will hear you. We do this with our children too. I want a drink. What? I want a drink. I don't hear anything. Can I have a drink, please? <gasps> Hello, child. Yes, you may. Right? I mean, it's the simplest of things. It's how we teach our children manners. God says, when you do these four things, when you humble yourself, pray, seek my face, and repent, then suddenly, hey, child of mine, yes, I will hear you. I will forgive you. Jesus, when he healed the lame man that was let down through the roof. What did he do before he healed him? He forgave him. God didn't think he needed forgiveness. I, I guess, I don't know. He didn't go there expecting it based on what we read, what scant information we have. It does not appear that those four friends of his were letting him down, letting him down through the roof going, y'all, if we could just get him to Jesus so Jesus could forgive him. And who knows, maybe he'll, maybe he'll heal him too. But if he could just forgive him. They weren't doing that. They were going for healing. But first he forgave. 
Forgiveness here has a place of prominence above healing. We see what God's purpose is. We see God's, what God values the most. He wants to heal and he will. It is his promise. But his first priority is to forgive to fix the relationship between him and his people. I will hear you, I will forgive you, and then I will heal the land. I will renew the land that I'd promised you. I will renew our promise, my promise, our relationship. I'll hear, I'll forgive, and I'll heal. Something that's not explicit in this passage, but is implicit, is the transformative responsibility of Israel. See, this intervention, when God says he would heal the land, do you think his healing was just to make them fat and happy again? The answer is no. I've said it before, I've heard it said many times by others, God is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. He, he, he likes his people happy and he does things to make them happy, but what is most important to, to him is your holiness, not your happiness. So his intervention was not to make them fat and happy. His intervention was to prepare them, to remind them, to, to get them ready and provide them with everything they needed to fulfill their purpose as missionaries to the world. The Jews are missionaries to the world? Yes. They had a missionary mandate. Our first verse to look at is Genesis 12, 2 through 3. It's the promise to Abraham. And when he uh, was told that many, many na uh, uh, nations would come from his, uh, many people would come from his offspring. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who, attempt, uh, who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through you, Abraham, through your people, Abraham, they had a missionary mandate. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. He is not just talking about the people in Israel getting their blind eyes opened or their prisoners being brought out or those in darkness from the prison house. He's talking about the nations around them, the world. And to make it even clearer, Isaiah 44, 8. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses, my missionaries. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. God knows everybody, by the way. I don't know any other rock. You are to tell the world about me. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, Raising up the tribes of Jacob, working in your own little places, in your own little lands, and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That was Israel's mandate. 
That was their purpose. That is why God called out a nation. That is why he chose them. These people were in a strategic location. Israel was a strategic location. It was the crossroads of the ancient Near East. If you wanted to get from Asia, Turkey, to Africa, you went through Israel. If you wanted to get from the Far East or the Middle East to the Near East to Asia or Africa, you went through Israel. It was the crossroads. It was absolutely the perfect spot for a missionary position. The only temple where God dwelt for all nations was in Israel. Where God lived there, that was his home, but it was a place for the nations. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43 is, uh, I think, the next verse. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. And there's more. <laughs> For they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm. Sorry, I don't have it written down on my stuff. Uh, an outstretched arm and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven, God, your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. A missionary mandate. They had the place where God dwelt and they wanted people to come and see that. But, but when their sin consumed them and stopped their mission, they and their land were punished. Every time. Ezekiel, speaking from the time of the exile... Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the direct declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. They were supposed to proclaim his name and they didn't because of their sin. Therefore God would proclaim his name through their discipline so that the nations would see who God was. Ezekiel 5, 5 through 8. This is what the Lord God says. I have set this Jerusalem in the center of the nations. Location, right? With countries all around her. She has rebelled against my ordinances with more wickedness than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that surround her. For her people have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you have been more insubordinate than the nations around you, you have not walked in my statutes or kept my ordinances. You have not even kept the ordinances of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments within you in the sight of the nations. Drought, plague, pestilence. The punishment of the people around them, those nations around them, was at least in part due to the failure of Israel to be missionaries to those nations around them. It's not all, it, it, not, not, and I would not even say the majority of the blame lies with Israel. But they had a responsibility to go tell those people the truth, and they didn't. 
There were people that were condemned that would not have been had they gone. That's for Israel then. What about for believers now? Well, I got real creative and gave you the same four points. Stages of discipline, necessary response, God's intervention, and transformative responsibility. We hear people repeatedly say, things are getting worse all the time. 2020 proves them right, I think. I mean, I'm just, just saying here. The Bible tells us it's going to get worse till Jesus comes back. I mean, it, I, you, you, you can be a prophet and never get stoned for being wrong if you will just say things are going to get worse before they get better. Because you're right. They absolutely will. Bible tells us it's going to get much worse. We're going to see more plagues. Uh, uh, we see right now, we see plagues, right? Locusts. We see protests usurped by rioters. We see wars. We see earthquakes. We see storms, not here today, thankfully, but just across the state from us. I mean, it, 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 was, and it is only going to get worse. What if... Bear with me here. What if this is all God's judgment on the church? I ain't talking about our country. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. Pat Robertson made his famous statement after 9-11 that that happened because of homosexuality in, the, in America. I won't um, declare one way or the other on why God chose to let that happen. I will say, though, that everything that happens, bad, negative, whatever it is, the church as a body needs to collectively examine and say, is this God judging us? In the stages of discipline, it very well could be. I believe it is. I believe that these things are happening to judge the church. The church is having its come to Jesus meeting in front of the other nations, in front of the world, in front of the land in which it lives for not being missionaries to the land in which it lives. And there's a necessary response, right? If wars and riots and all these things are just a response to what's going on, uh, are just uh, stages of discipline from the Lord, rather, if he has sent those, then believers need to respond. Believers should humble themselves. Believers, we have to remove the pharisaical pride that smugly sits on the right answer. And I said, sits on purpose. What is it you say, Tom? Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can? We have the gospel. We have the answer. And y'all, we figured out how to can it. And we think we're going to sell it, and we can it in this. We, we can it in three circles. We can it in faith. We can it in all these gospel presentations. 
and we go and we buy the can of gospel that we've gotten. Ooh, this is a good gospel. This is a great gospel. It'll last forever. And we sit on the can. We don't sell it. We don't give it. We, well, let's be honest. We do try to sell it. See my comment about the prosperity gospel preachers. We try. But we don't do anything with it. We sit on the right answer. We have it and we just do nothing with it. And then we sit and say, well, why are those sinners acting like sinners? Because they don't have salvation. But I'd also turn that around on you and say, hey, saved person, why are you acting like a sinner? Michael, why are you acting like a sinner? Well, we are. But we smugly and sit and think, we're better than them. We've got the gospel. Too bad they don't. How idiotic. We've got to humble ourselves. We have to pray. Yes, pray. When God's people pray, we go to God. He is the only one with the answers. But quit taking your answers to God. Go to God for His answers. Don't say to God, you've got to stop this. You've got to stop these riots. You have to stop this pandemic. You have to stop these grasshoppers. You have to stop this, these earthquakes. You have to stop these wars. Go to him for his answers. And don't stop here. We aren't told to merely pray when there is judgment being meted out on the church. We aren't told, well, just talk to me about it and everything will be okay. We are told to humble ourselves and pray. And then go to number three, pray God's prayers. What does he want you to pray about? C.S. Lewis made a famous quote years ago because he was alive back then. Prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Now I'll stand here and tell you that the prayers of people guide the hand of God. I don't know how that works. It's not a vending machine. God never loses his sovereignty. But in however God set it up, God responds to the prayers of his people. But the purpose of prayer is not for God to do something, but to change our attitude, response, and relationship with God. So when we humble, have humbled ourselves and realize we have the right answer and we've been sitting on it, and when we realize the only one we need to go to about this is God, then we pray to God that we will pray his prayers for whatever situation we are in. We don't, we don't stop here either, right? Because even praying the right prayers is not enough. We, I, I, I can pray. I can pray and I can pray until I can't breathe. But until I repent, there will be no change. I can pray every word until I run out of them and cannot talk anymore. But until I repent, there will be no change. Because number four, we repent and praying God's prayers and humbling yourself and putting aside your rightness will lead you to know in what areas you need to repent. God will tell you through the prayers he wants you to pray where you need to repent. 
If we want an end to abortion, believers need to repent of devaluing the lives of immigrants, the poor, or those not like us. Believers need to repent. If we want an end to race riots, believers need to repent of their racism. If we want an end to homosexuality, believers need to repent of their culture-based assumptions of macho bullying manliness and genteel demurring femininity that are both fake and false and that shame any who would not fit this exaggerated secular mold. You don't have to grunt, hunt, and power tool to be a godly man, and you don't have to make up, doll up, and sachet to be a godly woman. You have to be godly to be one of those. Quit telling men and boys that they don't fit the mold of manhood because they don't growl enough for you. Or telling women and little girls that, no, you can't play softball, you can't play soccer, you need to wear dresses and be freely to be the right kind of woman. Let them be who God created them to be according to his word. That's right. Not what we say they ought to be. If they're sinning, we call out sin. But it's not a sin for a woman to not like makeup and for a man to cut somebody, somebody else's hair. Stop creating these dichotomies that don't exist. If we want an end to homosexual marriage, believers need to repent of their winking acceptance of divorces of convenience and the disintegration of godly heterosexual marriage. We need to speak up for marriage, not just against homosexual marriage. We need to speak up for the completion of marriage from vows to grave instead of ignoring when marriages are so... Cast away unimportant that we just never say anything. If we want to end the delinquency of our youth, believers need to repent of the farming out of the discipleship of their children to youth ministers, ministries, and churches. It is not our job to raise your children. It is your job to raise your children. We will give you tools. We will help you along the way. But we spend a couple hours a week with your kids. You spend all the rest. It is the parents' job to disciple their children. If we want to end, uh, want an end to the lack of integrity and morality in the public square, believers need to repent of their promotion and glorification of politicians that brag about and exemplify the works of the flesh and show none of the fruit of the spirit. And if you can't think of what all those were, Galatians five nineteen through twenty three. If we want an end to the corruption and graft in the marriage of politics and Wall Street that hurts the working person, believers need to repent of their greed and materialism. If we want an end to murder, believers need to repent of the hatred in their hearts. If we want an end to the glorification of serial adultery, believers need to repent of the lust in their hearts. If we want an end to fake news, believers need to repent of lying. If we want an end to strife and dissension, believers need to repent of not turning the other cheek. If we want an end to poverty. Believers need to repent of not giving to those in need. If we want an end to factionalism, tribalism, and divided families, communities, and countries, believers need to repent of not loving their enemies. And when the church repents, God will show up. (laughs) 
and God intervenes. God shows up. God will hear his believers, his people. He will forgive believers and he will heal the church. The church is the land. I will hear, I will heal their land. The church is the land, not the building, the body. Not just this body, the universal church. The collective we is the promise to the individual us. The church is the promise to the individual believer. The land for Israel was their source of nourishment, of family, of comfort, of support, of identity, and of so many other things. The church is the believer's source of these things. Come to me all who are hungry. Feed on my word. We call each other brother and sister. Who do we go with to with prayer requests? Who comes to us when we have a need? Who are we first before we are anything else? We are believers. We are members of the body of the church. And our sins as individuals and also as a corporate body, the church, are the cause of the drought, plague, pestilence, whatever they may be, that ruin the church. As a matter of fact, the sins, I believe, are the drought, plague, and pestilence. And then there's transformative responsibility. Healing is not to make us fat and happy. God heals our church. Now we can build some buildings, maybe create some denominations, possibly form some political action committees. We can entertain the saved and we can ignore the condemned and lost. That is not what we are healed to do. Isaiah 49, 6, again, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up tribes of Jacob, restoring the protected ones of Israel, building your buildings, creating denominations, forming political action committees, entertaining my believers, and ignoring the ones that I love and wish were saved. I made you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. We are healed to be missionaries. We are to bless all people as Abraham was told. And how, church, can you bless those whom you hate? Israel couldn't do it either. You're in the same boat. When they decided they hated the nations around them more than they loved God, they couldn't reach them. Folks, believers are strategically located in the world, right? Because we're where? Everywhere. I mean, you can't get more strategically located than that. We are everywhere. We are God's temple. We are where God dwells. He dwells in every believer. Therefore, we take our worship of him with us. The place for the nations to worship is the hearts of their people. But we need to take the message of the gospel to those people. And when our sin consumes us as individuals, as believers, when our sin consumes the church and we fail at our mission because of it, we see the moral deterioration of the U.S. and the world. 
and we see wars and riots, hatred and brutality. We, the church, the first Baptist church of sulfur, have not been the missionaries, the blessings to the nations we were called to be. Our engagement of the sinfulness and ills of our country have done little to no good because the individuals of the church and the church body collectively pray and we stop there. We don't repent. In my humble opinion. And even if some of us do, I look around and I think, not enough. So humble yourself, but don't stop there. Don't stop here. Pray, but, but if you're writing down those points, don't stop here. Pray God's prayers, but don't stop here. Repent, but don't stop here. Be a light to the nations and don't stop. If my people who bear my name humbles themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Maybe your repentance this morning is repentance for salvation. You've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Well, the, the understanding you come to to trust Jesus as your Savior is that you need to repent, that you've broken his design. He has one. He has a plan, and sin ruins that, and it introduces brokenness to the world, and then brokenness begats brokenness, and the only heal for the brokenness is the gospel and you repent of your sins, and you believe that Jesus, who he says he is, when you place your faith in him, that is the gospel, the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was dead and buried, and three days later, he rose again, proving victory over sin and death. And as we repent and believe that gospel, then we get to see God recover and we take part in pursuing his design again, which would be, based on the message this morning, what? Being missionaries to our world and seeing hearts change in so many people. I've seen a lot lately that the answer to racism is a changed heart. It's the topic du jour, so that's why I'm using it. That is right. That's absolutely right. How well can a racist share the gospel with someone he thinks is less than him or her? It's just one example among many, many. When we believe, when we trust, when we follow, we have the message that will change the racist's heart, that will change the hater's heart, that will change the adulterer's heart, that will change the abortionist's heart, that will change the homosexual's heart, that will change the atheist's heart, that will change the lost person's heart, the generic lost person. But if we hate them, how can we go to them? Repent church and be missionaries. Pray with me. Father, Lord, thank you for speaking today.
Lord, we want to pray your prayers. We want to humble ourselves. We want to come to you. We want to pray your prayers. And Lord God, we need, whether we want to or not, to repent of the sins in our lives before we can expect you to heal our church and then use it as an effective means of missionary love and gospel proclamation to our community and the world. Lord, change our hearts, we pray. And let us see true unity. Unity based on the gospel in our land. I pray the church will repent. I pray that I will repent and see you heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of prayer, and I, I really, really wish I, would, I could open up the front for y'all to come forward and pray. Just not. But let me encourage you where you are to kneel, if that's it, if that's what you need to do, to turn, to, to sit, whatever, as I've told you before, just change position a little bit from what you would normally do. Humble yourself, and this ain't all going to happen today, y'all. But right now, humble yourself, go to God, ask for his prayers, and repent of those things that he tells you you need to repent of so that he can heal our church and we can see movement toward him in our land. If you have other prayer needs, grab Tom or me or Amy or someone. We'd love to sit down and talk with you. If you'd like to accept Christ and you'd like a little more information on how to do that, we would love to talk to you about that too and we can step into one of the rooms there in the foyer and talk about that. For the next five, six minutes is our opportunity to begin first baby step to put into practice when God's people repent.